Welcome to Provisional Aspirations, a podcast exploring the psychology of religion, philosophy, and clinical mental health. I'm Jeffrey Wallace, author, religious trauma survivor, and graduate student pursuing a master's degree in counseling psychology. Join me as I indulge my academic interest in the human spiritual experience, a curiosity that I couldn't fully explore as a member of a high demand religious group. But now I'm learning out loud and it feels great. In academia, you often hear talk of soft sciences and hard sciences. Soft sciences, like the social sciences, generally deal with intangible things, like human and animal thinking, emotion, and behavior. Whereas hard sciences focus on the workings of the natural world, like chemistry, biology, and physics. When it comes to the scientific study of the human mind and brain, psychology is a soft science, whereas neuroscience is a corresponding hard science bringing the intangible theories of human mind and thinking to the realm of reality, usually through neuroimaging. When it comes to studying religion and spirituality, we could call the psychology of religion a soft science, and the corresponding hard science we would call neurotheology. At least this is the perspective of the American neuroscientist and professor of religious studies at the University of Pennsylvania, Andrew B. Newberg, in his 2018 book called Neurotheology, how science can enlighten us about spirituality. Neurotheology could also be referred to as the neuroscience of religion, or my favorite, neurospirituality. According to Newberg, and I quote, neurotheology provides an incredibly broad, multidisciplinary, and holistic approach to understanding the brain and religious and spiritual phenomena, end quote. He states the purpose of neurotheology as follows. First, to improve our understanding of the human mind and brain. Second, to improve our understanding of religion and theology. Third, to improve the human condition, particularly in the context of health and well-being. And fourth, to improve the human condition, particularly in the context of religion and spirituality." End quote. I really enjoyed Newberg's perspective in neurotheology, the book that I'll reference the most in this episode. The introduction to the book really gives you the sense that Newberg desires to cut through the polarism that is so often present in the discussion of religion. Newberg doesn't react to the emotional energy surrounding debates around atheism versus theism or religion versus science. To Newberg, all of this is the fodder of neurotheological research. And he steps back as if to run the whole discussion through an fMRI machine and figure out exactly what's going on. A common theme that runs through the entire book is Newberg's concept of the happy prison of the brain. To Newberg, our beliefs about the world, be they religious or otherwise, are all suspect. Our brain takes information from the world through our sensory apparatus and creates a version of reality that we use as a framework by which to live. The problem is that, and I quote, when interpreting our sensory experiences, our brain makes many mistakes. Unfortunately, it never tells us when it's made a mistake, which is one way that the brain keeps us happy. This is the happy prison of the brain. We take data from our surroundings and create illusory worldviews and go about our day imagining that we are not completely and utterly deluded. Attempting to live in the absence of any illusory cognitive rules is impractical, if not completely impossible. Believe me, I've tried. 
And anyone who has come out of a religiously prescribed worldview and experienced the shattered worldview that has been connected to religious trauma syndrome understands that the mind can hold on tenaciously at times to a way of thinking that is in opposition to readily available data and how traumatic it can be when the mind finally lets go. Newberg's book is chock full of profound insights that knit together the human spiritual experience with the activity of that three-pound lump of flesh inside our skull. But I'd like to focus on just one of these insights as the topic of this episode of Provisional Aspirations, the neuroscience of religious extremism. Newberg's discussion of religious extremism appears in chapter three of Neurotheology, a chapter titled Neurotheology and Psychology. He starts with a theoretical explanation of extremism from a psychological perspective, and then discusses two brain areas involved in religious extremism, the parietal lobe and the amygdala. Importantly, Newberg makes a distinction between the cognitive psychology of extremism and ideologically based acts of violence. This is an important distinction to make. While I will make a number of correlations between common ways of thinking in the religious environment of my upbringing and Newberg's theory of extremism, there is clearly a difference between individuals who are caught in a fundamentalist religious thinking and those who cross over into the realm of theologically justified acts of violent terrorism of the sort that we have, unfortunately, become far too familiar. However, understanding the similarities is essential to understanding the tendency of the human mind toward radicalism so that we can moderate it in ourselves and in global society at large. Newberg starts this way on page 134 of his book, Neurotheology, and I quote, Extremist religious behaviors, also sometimes called fundamentalism, are somewhat common in many traditions. Fundamentalism, however, more specifically refers to a strong, even militant, opposition to modernism. The more specific characteristics of fundamentalism include a highly defined set of beliefs, a belief in the inerrancy of sacred texts, and patriotism. However, more broadly, fundamentalism may have more to do with how a person or group of people interpret and implement a sacred text. In this context, religion provides a structure of beliefs that creates meaning and purpose for people. It is a comprehensive meaning system that helps clarify many, if not all, aspects of life. For fundamentalists, the meaning is so apparent that they don't understand why not everyone understands it. For outsiders, the extremist individual appears stubborn, misguided, and dangerously oppositional." End quote. So going back to the theme of the happy prison of the brain, we can see how fundamentalism creates this myopic worldview uh, that is so strongly reinforced by other members of the group that it becomes very difficult for fundamentalists to understand how anybody could ever see the world differently. Newberg then goes on to talk about how this ideologically restricted universe that the fundamentalist lives in can be a powder keg of sorts. He says this, and I quote, other aspects of religious extremism, especially those that lead to more violent positions, might grow out of a high threat perception and a reduced amount of freedom to explore other ideas. As the perception of threat grows and as behavioral and belief options diminish, violence becomes more likely. 
These processes are fomented by intense rituals, strong personal guides or leaders, and an increasing desire for social connectedness, end quote. When the powder keg of religious fundamentalism is threatened by an outside source, it can then invert on itself and become even further radicalized so that members feel that the only option for them at some point will be to act out in violent aggression. Another really interesting point moving on in this chapter is how religious extremism and fundamentalism on the individual psychological level for some members can be positive. He says, and I quote, religious extremism may be psychologically positive. As for those who give their lives to a particular religious tradition, including ministers, monks, nuns, and rabbis, for these individuals, although they pursue their tradition to an extreme degree, they generally have a positive outlook and a positive perspective of those of other traditions, end quote. I would argue that just because an individual absorbs themselves in a lifestyle centered around a spiritual pursuit does not necessarily mean that they have these markers of extremist psychology at the individual level. For some, this may just be a pragmatic social arrangement for them. However, I agree with the statement that extremism can be psychologically positive. This is what I referred to in my book as spiritual elitism, or we could also refer to it as spiritual narcissism. Narcissism, of course, is a personality disorder cataloged in the DSM. But when it doesn't go to the extent of a diagnosable personality disorder, it is really just a quality of personality that is shown in, to varying degrees in almost everybody. But what we know of individuals who are high in narcissism is that they rarely come to therapy of their own volition. That's to say that a narcissist doesn't suffer. It's only those that are subject to their blind arrogance who suffer particularly when the narcissist actions that are related to their rigid worldview encroach on the well-being of someone who is lower on this personality trait. This manifests in a spiritual context, when an individual truly believes that they are in a privileged position with God that others do not enjoy. If they also fill a socially dominant role and their assumptions go unchallenged, then they will continue happy in this delusion forever, or at least until a more powerful player enters the scene. So then it is with great effort that an individual will defend their worldview and defend this comprehensive meaning system that is provided by the fundamentalist group. He goes on to talk again about the happy prison of the brain, and I quote, The human brain typically has no choice but to establish various beliefs and systems of meaning in order to make sense of the world. Once we have established a set of beliefs that work for us, our brain helps us detect ideas and data that are supportive or averse to our prevailing belief system. One reason we maintain our beliefs strongly is that on a biological level, it actually requires energy to break neuronal bonds and establish new ones. So there is an inherent avoidance of breaking old bonds, and hence old beliefs, if we do not have to. It must be stated, though, that we all face difficulty giving up ideas and becoming emotional when confronted with someone who disagrees with us. This occurs in politics, work, relationships, and science. We are all fundamentalists, to some degree. End quote. Newberg's psychological perspective on radicalism and extremism is empathetic to individuals involved in these situations. Really, we all have this mind with the tendency to form rules and worldviews that help us navigate through life. Ideological extremism is like junk food for the mind. 
We all love this stuff, but we have to work to keep ourselves in check. Now let's move to the neuroscience. As I mentioned earlier, we're gonna be talking about two particular brain regions, the parietal lobe and the amygdala. Moving on, Newberg talks about the sense of unity or connectedness that is a critical ingredient in all extremist groups. Newberg says, and I quote, the sense of unity exists primarily within the individual's given group. This is most evident in cults in which a person or group of people becomes so close that they completely exclude others from the group. As their interactions continue, their belief system can become more and more bizarre and extreme. End quote. So what does this look like in the brain? Newberg continues, and I quote, The sense of unity or connectedness is believed to occur in large part in the parietal lobe. As a person experiences a sense of oneness and connectedness with a particular ideology or group, the parietal lobe is affected such that it alters the perception of self in relation to the world and in relation to others. As the sense of connection grows stronger within the group, those outside the group holding ideas contrary to the group are viewed in more negative ways, end quote. This sheds a lot of light on the experience of cult members who really feel like they've lost reality uh, when they get absorbed in this strong collectivism and can have this strong sense of awakening when they finally remove themselves from the group. This is a matter of the parietal lobe altering our sense of self and our worldview in the face of a strong social cohesion. Given the strong social element then, getting caught up in a group like this is not just about the convincing nature of their arguments, but as Newberg puts it, and I quote, these experiences also carry with them a profound sense of realness. The ideas espoused in the particular belief system become the reality for the participants. The more real and the more unified the belief system becomes, the more its ideas become the reality for that person and the more alternative ideas become unreal or evil. Since the ideas of people from different belief systems are considered unreal or evil, a cult follower may have little difficulty viewing those others with great contempt and hatred, believing that they are perpetrating great evil and hence need to be exterminated. A complex decision incorporating ethics, philosophy, and theology." End quote. When we think of unity, we usually put it in a positive light to have a strong brotherly connection. And yet, unity is closely related to conformity, which of course has a negative connotation, the idea that we would lose our objectivity and our criticality in a group. This reminds me of a biblical passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, from the New World Translation. Now I urge you, brothers, through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you should all speak in agreement and that there should be no divisions among you but that you may be completely united in the same mind and in the same line of thought, end quote. What starts with warm and fuzzies resulting from this work of the parietal lobe can cross a threshold to where our semblance of self and our worldview is warped by the strong interconnectedness with the group. The second area of the brain associated with a religious extremism is the amygdala. Now we know that the amygdala is the anxiety or fear center of the brain. Now this goes back to the happy prison of the brain and the very real threat, the very real fear that is experienced when an alternative viewpoint challenges the existential beliefs 
of the member of an extremist group. Newberg says this, and I quote, if the alternative belief system is correct, that implies that the brain itself does not really understand the world properly, a vulnerable position to be in. If we have an incorrect perspective on the world, then the emotional and anxiety areas of the brain, such as the amygdala, become highly active in order to force us to find the correct information so that we can live more effectively. It is far easier then to assume that the alternative belief system is wrong and that what we have believed all along is still correct. This settles our brain down and makes us feel much more comfortable." End quote. In many fundamentalist groups, the fear of outsiders cannot be understated. The amygdala will certainly be activated when religious doctrine states that a supernatural wicked force who had the power to manipulate my thinking towards evil existed outside the group's bounds, and that outsiders were, not individually, but as a collective, under this wicked being's control. And as other ex-members will no doubt confirm, this neurological fear pathway remains, even after you understand intellectually, that is, with the cognitive areas of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex, that the belief is not evidence-based. Given that we all have a parietal lobe, which will help us feel unity with others, and we all have an amygdala, which will make us feel afraid of outsiders, Newberg leaves us with this to conclude chapter three, and I quote, The question that always needs to be asked is, what exactly does a person feel at one with? If the person feels at one with a limited set of beliefs or a limited group of people, there can be extreme antagonism and hatred for people with alternative beliefs. And if the amygdala reaction is strong, the person might conclude that not only are adherents to the alternative belief system wrong, but evil as well. This can foment great anger and hostility with the person ultimately coming to the conclusion that eradication is the only logical choice, end quote. Newberg's book really answered a lot of questions for me when it comes to the neuroscience of extremism. And I appreciate that Newberg separates cognition and behavior. While the underlying psychological similarities exist across groups who are fundamental in nature, there is a big difference between the actions requested by different fundamentalist groups. One may simply require proselytizing work and morality requirements. Others may call members to acts of violence. That's important for me to acknowledge as I reflect upon my own experience in a psychologically fundamentalist group that certainly didn't call for such acts of violence. But in the years between 2014 and 2017, I, like many in the United States, was obsessed with Islamic extremism. Uh, we as a nation were in a quandary over how second-generation children of moderate Islamic immigrants could be radicalized and perhaps even lured back to Syria to fight in an extremist group. In the meantime, I was proselytizing to people, uh, many of whom were Islamic. I read the Quran. I read books about the history of Islam. I read the history of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and I read a lot about ISIS recruitment tactics to try and understand exactly what it was they were saying that made them so appealing. This was a pivotal point in my awakening as I started to identify these elements of fundamentalist psychology that Newberg highlights in his book and that I could see in myself. This, of course, is a commentary on my personal psychology. I'm not extending it to the group as a whole. I'm of the opinion that religion, like culture, is a non-thing. Members of religious groups are always individuals who are impacted at varying degrees 
by the varying schemata that make up their religious doctrine on the whole. But the question that Newberg leaves each of us with is this. No matter what our prevailing belief system, how can we actually escape the happy prison of the brain? Thanks for joining me this time on Provisional Aspirations. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and also leave a review if you can. And please hit me up on social media if you have any questions or comments about the show. I'd love to get in touch. 